0: We've been in a series um, leading up to Christmas that's called the Songs of Christmas. We've got this one and then one more next week. Uh, We've been looking at some kind of classic Christmas songs and examining kind of the stories behind them, just getting a little bit of history and then connecting that to the scripture and uh, seeing what we can learn and what God has to tell us through that. So um, today's song is Joy to the World, the one that we sang um, just a minute ago. Which, they did a beautiful job. They come up here and just crush it after, like, very little help. So I just, can we just, like, thank our band? Seriously. I, every week, every week I'm just, like, so grateful for the people that we have here that care about what we're doing and what God is doing in this community. And um, with, like I said, not a ton of, like, professional help. (laughs) You guys are doing great. Um, So let me share a little bit of background about uh, Joy to the World. It was written in 1719 by an English minister and hymn writer named Isaac Watts. Uh, Its lyrics are actually like a reinterpretation of Psalm 98. Um, I'm going to read Psalm 98 at the end of this talk. Um, What's interesting, though, is It is interesting. Christmas songs. Why do we sing Christmas songs around Christmas time? Some of you even mentioned, like, yo, I kind of hate Christmas songs. I'm like, hey, I feel you a little bit. Because sometimes you just sing them and go through the motions. But that's kind of why we've been breaking these things open a little bit. But um, this was not originally written as a Christmas song. It wasn't written about the birth of Jesus. It was written about, like, the second coming of Jesus. Like, Jesus returning. And it's, it's interesting, the season of waiting to celebrate Christmas Day, um, that we call Advent, is very similar to the situation that we are in as Christians today. We're waiting for Jesus to culminate this human story and uh, make all things new and heal all that's broken. This song was written for that, but it really is appropriate, right? It, it's, it sounds like we're talking about this king coming for the first time, um, but it was written uh, as a song about Advent, um, at some point, it became like a Christmas classic. And in fact, in the 20th century, Joy to the World, according to Google, has become the most published Christian or Christmas hymn in North America. Would you have guessed that? I would have, I would have thought maybe like Silent Night or All Holy Night. You got a lot on that one. That might be like second place or something. But it's Joy to the World, um, which again was kind of very surprising to me. Um, but in a world, which is also ironic, because we live in a world that often struggles to find joy, or at least to find joy that stands the test of time. Um, you know there's kind of a difference between joy and happiness. I'm not going to unpack that. I don't really know what the difference is, but I think there is one. Joy maybe might be through suffering. Happiness is something that you can be happy about, a lot of different things, and it's, it's fleeting. Um, but in a world that, searches for joy so passionately, um, we produce and reproduce a song about the joy of Jesus coming to this world. Actually, one of my favorite lyrics to a song we sang, Oh Holy Night today, too. Um, We're going to finish our service next week with that one, by the way, so spoiler alert. But um, I love that line, a thrill of favorite line of the whole um, song, a thrill of hope a weary, weary world rejoices. Isn't that such a great line? That we're expecting this hope that brings joy. That line gets me every time. We live in a world that really needs and wants to find joy, to rejoice at something. So we're going to hit on that in a weird way today. Um, we're going to talk about a person named Caesar Uh, and how Luke, kind of the writer of this story that we're going to read, sets up Jesus kind of against Caesar. you got to pick which one of those you're going to give yourself to. So let me pray, and then we'll we'll jump into that. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, another day to live and breathe and gather up together as friends um, and as people that are looking for joy and peace. Um, And here we are here they are, listening to my voice, um, which I hope is reflective of who you are, um, as we look to you for, as the source of our joy, as the source of everything, really. Um, I pray that you will be present uh, as I speak, and always, you, you got the veto power to just give me a little check in my mind or heart if there's something else I'm supposed to say that I don't have written down, but... Um, I pray that this time will will really speak to the heart of everybody here and that we really will clarify that you are the one that brought great joy to all people. You're the only one, really. Um, So we place our trust in you. Amen. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. We read these verses a few weeks ago, but we're going to be looking at it from a little bit different perspective today. Uh, Verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, which was a bold thing to do, by the way. It's a flex of your power to want to know who all your people are so that you can tax them more. Um, Verse 2. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, another prominent person of power, and everyone, verse 3, went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, where Jesus was born, uh, to, to Judea, to, excuse me, I was wrong, where he'll go there later, but, uh, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds, we talked about them, remember, uh, a few weeks ago, living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around him, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. I wish last week, when I did the Bethlehem talk, I had made the, a connection for you when we did communion. Um, because Jesus was born and placed into uh, a feeding trough for animals. Um, which we are supposed to, as readers of this Bible, see that he is like our source of life. And so we celebrate communion later as this, the same sort of thing. So the Bible is full of really, really cool connections like that, that Jesus himself was placed into something that provides food, just like the symbolism of communion provides life for us. So that's just not on my notes, but I wish I had said that last week. But next time, next year, I'll get you next year. Um, <laughs> So last week we visited certain places in Israel to show the power of uh, a person named Herod the Great, um, who was one that's listed. He's not in this version of the story, but in Matthew's version. Um, Today we're going to expand the borders of power. So Herod, he might have sounded like the most powerful person in the world if you were here last week, but there's actually someone that's even more powerful than him. Uh, so we're going to visit uh, Caesar Augustus. We're going to focus on his Roman power, the most powerful person in the world at the time, is listed in the first verse here and has become since then a footnote in Jesus' story, which is crazy. We read it as just a, like, oh yeah, Caesar Augustus, whoever that is. Like, that's the person. That's the most powerful person in the world who Luke, the writer of these Uh, stories that took them down so we could have them today um, included at the beginning there. So he's setting us up. When we read it, we just breeze over those names, right? It just feels like this is what we always read, and we read it around a little stall and stuff like that, and there's animals. But um, Luke, this witness to these events, this follower of Jesus, um, is setting up like a contest between Caesar and Jesus. That's why he's listing those names. He's, he's setting up uh, this Jesus versus Caesar showdown that's like going to unfold in the rest of um, the Gospels. We usually read uh, the story as quaint and precious, and it is. I'm not always trying to tell you, like, we're reading it wrong. Like, those are beautiful, tender, wonderful moments. But it's also a time when there is crazy political stuff happening and... Jesus is born in the context of great oppression and risk, and the fact that Luke is even writing the name of Caesar connected in comparison, really, to who this newborn king is was a huge, risky thing. It's scandalous material that could get him hurt. So the way that Luke presents uh, Jesus versus Caesar actually gives the reader of these Gospels, us, Christians, anybody to follow, the opportunity to make a decision. Are we going to follow Caesar's way or are we going to follow Jesus' way? And they are very different ways. Very, very different ways. And it's easy to slip into the way of Caesar, um, even today uh, in, in the world that we live in, too. When you get to the core of this idea, um, the result of this Uh, Idea that I'm presenting right now, that Luke presents to us, it really should cause every Christian to lower the importance of their political identity uh, in order to bring them or anything else under the way and lordship of Jesus, which I think is a really important thing for us to remember. This is the one time I'll say it. It's an election year next year, and crazy stuff happens in those years. And I have no idea what it's going to be. I don't know what out there is going to try and pull us apart. This is all I'm going to say. Let's not let anything pull us apart. Let's rank Jesus the highest. And, and we might even struggle with defining what parts to focus on. But I'm hoping that just by saying Jesus is highest for us, that we can find common ground, even if next year brings weird Tensions and conflict. I think we can love our way through it. So, um, where on earth am I on that? Cheat. Okay. The language that was used for Caesar, this is fascinating. So, the language that the Romans used for Caesar Augustus was very similar to the way that the New Testament writers describe Jesus. This is the showdown, right? Um, I'm going to read you a quote here from uh, the pre. Praen inscription. So, this is this like inscription that they found in 9 BCE uh, that describes uh, Caesar Augustus. Like, listen to how much this sounds like you're talking about Jesus. The most divine Caesar, we we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. So, that's like equal to God. For whom everything was falling into disorder and tending towards disillusion, he restored it once more. And gave the whole world a new aspect. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the beginning of the year. They adjusted their calendar so that his birthday is the beginning of the year. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to a climax of perfection in giving us The emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior, has put an end to war. That's debatable, but, and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news concerning him. Doesn't that sound like you're talking about Jesus? Isn't that crazy? That sounds like you just remix it just a little bit from what we read in the pages of the New Testament, and you're basically talking about Jesus. And we have these writers, these witnesses to these events that are saying, no, there's actually one that's like the real king of the universe. But the Roman Empire, they worshiped Caesar Augustus as God. He was in the Roman mythology, uh, the Roman god Juniper. He's like equal to that god. And there's a lot of like interplay between like how do you have Greek mythology and religious stuff that like you just call Zeus Juniper and it's like the same thing. Um, I'm not going to go into all of that because it confuses me a little bit, but they're synchronizing uh, words to deities that they have the names for. Bottom line, um, Caesar. Uh, Augustus, in their mind, was like the father of the gods. He's like the one who has come, incarnated God in human form, and he is the answer. He's the savior. You could say he's the way, the truth, right? Like you could totally, for their view of who Caesar was. But to be crystal clear, and you'll see some of that difference here in a second, um, the empire's message was good news, you know, it ended there, the beginning of the good news, um, that word gospel, uh, for only some people. Romans, uh, Romans and the most elite of their society, the middle class in the Roman world, um, who were willing to play nice with the empire, could live a relatively comfortable life and some semblance of peace. Um, but all those who opposed... The lordship of Caesar, or opposed the way of Rome in their colonization and oppression of uh, the nations around them, uh, or if you were lower class, uh, you would never know if that day was going to be your last. If you threatened Caesar, you, your life was at risk. So, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, is presented as the incarnation of God on earth. So in Luke's birth story that we just read a second ago of Jesus, we're introduced to Caesar as a contrasting, Caesar Augustus as a contrasting way to Jesus, or Jesus as a contrasting way to Caesar. You've probably heard of the phrase um, Pax Romana. And uh, those are the years, 40 years, when Caesar Augustus was um, Caesar of Rome, uh, Emperor of Rome, uh, and it's it's really not years of peace; it's years of force uh, that led to the the Roman slogan like "peace through military victory." So, meaning peace through might or strength. It's a it's a fist peace. It's you're going to get peace as long as nobody uh, tries to stand in your way. In other words, um, mil- they would militarily. Devastate anybody who would not confess that Caesar is Lord. If you don't confess, then you are subject to slavery, or um, perhaps even worse, you would be pinned to a wooden cross that a previous group had invented and the Romans perfected called crucifixion. Jesus was not even close to being the only one that was crucified. It was a regular practice to make a statement that if you oppose Caesar, who is God in human form, you will be hung to a cross, which is precisely what happened to Jesus and many, many, many others. Um, There's a first-century historian named Tacitus, I always feel real fancy when I say a name like that, <laughs> as if I know all of the historians. I just know this is a good quote about this. Um, but he wrote extensively about the like, collision of Ro- the Roman Empire and the growing group of Christians, and he says this, um, All men have to bow to their betters. It had been decreed by the gods that with the Roman people should rest the decision What to give and what to take away. That sounds like a God statement, doesn't it? You give and you take away. They rob, butcher, plunder, and call it empire. And where they make desolation, they call it peace. It's peace for the victors, it's destruction, slavery, and even death for those who might oppose Caesar as Lord. There's a lot of cool stuff the Roman Empire did. I've seen their pavers, the technology. There's great ways that the development of countries can advance human technology. But as we see in this case and in most others in this world, power, when it's taken... I'll stop there. For Caesar Augustus, he believed... Subjection by military conquest was the way, the way to rule. Uh, The same guy, Tacitus, uh, that I quoted a second ago says this. For miles around, he wasted the country with sword and flame. Neither age nor sex inspired pity. So it doesn't matter who you are, if you stand in the way. Places sacred and profane were raised indifferently to the ground. The city will be destroyed. If you stand in the way of Lord Caesar, you will die. You're you're going to lose. Caesar was a, Caesar Augustus was a strategic politician and military commander. He was the head of uh, the Roman religious pantheon um, and he ruled, uh, he would say, not by like Devastation, but definitely by fear and terror. That that's what kept people in check, is you're afraid that you could lose your life. And he brought certain economic benefits to people. Um, the empire provided a lot of structure and certain benefits. It would even tolerate uh, different religious ideas as long as Caesar was acknowledged as God incarnate on earth. So you can see that... When Jesus is born, and you have this group of people that are believing he is the one that's like in competition with Caesar, that Rome's gonna go, yeah, no, not really. Like, watch what happens to someone who says they are the one true king. You're gonna hang on a cross like the thousands and thousands of others. They mocked him, they gave him a crown of thorns the title King of the Jews, they put over top of his cross. Um, A later emperor named Nero, so to just highlight a little bit more of this contrast between the empire and the way of Jesus, um, he was particularly vicious um, and brutal towards Christians and Jews who challenged the idea of Caesar as God there's lots of examples. Um, he blamed a fire in a city on the Christians, and then just went on this big rampage um, to uh, persecute and kill many, many of them, thousands of them. Um, there's one of them, one example that happened in the city called Gamla. I have some pictures of that you can throw up there. Uh, I've been there before. It's actually bigger than it looks. Um, yeah, our, can't, our screens aren't great, but that's like a city down there to the left right there, and it's there was uh, like 9,000 people, I think, who lived in this city uh, kind of around the time of Jesus, um, and in 66 AD, so this is after, you know, Jesus rose, and then Christians were really beginning to, um, you know, make disciples of all nations, but there was a Jewish group called the Zealots, um, which is present in the New Testament too, um, who wanted to overthrow Rome by the same means that Rome was getting their power, by violence. Um, and so they had many different revolts. Uh, it would be interesting to do a series on that, because it's, it's fascinating how you overlay the Jesus movement with this. But, um, so these, these Jewish uh, zealots wanted to overthrow Caesar get them out of their land. Um, You can understand their uh, frustration. (laughs) We might feel the same way. Um, But Caesar had to flex his power. Right? That's what happens. If you try and get in the way, then you're going to die. By surrounding the city, uh, that whole mountain right there, surrounding that city, um, shooting big rocks with trebuchets up into that city and Anybody that didn't die in battle, once they broke those walls um, to get in there, there was, it's said to have over 5,000 people who, uh, when they weren't killed in battle, they all jumped off of that cliff right up there, which again is a lot bigger than it actually looks, to stand there and go, there are people that were so under the boot of this empire that they would rather jump from cliffs, 5,000 of them, than bend a knee to Caesar which again, we're tempted to go like, "Yeah, that's sort of that's, that's good, ish, until you look at the way that Jesus actually presented us to live." So the Jews and the Christians were under the mighty foot of the Caesars for like 300 years. It was illegal to be a Christian, a whole ton of persecution, impalement, real danger for them. And it was illegal. Uh, until the year 1313. Christianity became uh, legal in the empire uh, under Emperor Constantine, Um, and actually it became the state religion. So it wasn't just that it was no longer illegal, but it became legal and now like the enforced state religion, which you might think like, whoa, it's such an interesting thing to debate because it's like, great, It's not illegal to be a Christian anymore. Things are much, much better. And that would be partially true from what I understand about history. But at the same time, you look at the next thousand years of the church's existence like in marriage with Rome, in marriage with Caesar, and some of the most gross things in the name of Jesus began to happen for a thousand years. The Crusades. Other things that really, I mean, the Crusades alone is the same sort of thing that Rome did for Rome's own sake. Convert to being a Christian or die. How did followers of Jesus ever get to that point? So Luke sets up this battle between Caesar as Lord and Jesus as Lord, and they have completely different agendas. Caesar came to bring peace for some through the use of force. Jesus came to bring, bring peace to all through love and self-sacrifice. Let me read you this quote. Last quote, I promise. The real quote he talked today. Um, by C.S. Lewis, that's absolutely one of my favorites. Um, He says in his book, uh, Miracles, which I would highly suggest reading that, he says the central uh, miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation, which is Jesus coming into human, like God coming into human form through Jesus. Like sounds similar to what they were saying about Caesar, right? They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into space and time, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world up with him. One has a picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must also almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens up his back and marches off with a whole mass swaying on his shoulders. That's so good. Jesus, the all-powerful king, took a trip from the throne on heaven And landed inside of a womb. Entrusting himself to the same wonderful and dangerous process of being born into this world. Jesus probably did the same thing that every baby does when it's born into the world. Jesus cried his way into life. He came all the way from heaven, spent nine months quietly in his mother's womb. And then at that moment, at the very first Christmas... The king of the universe was born into human history with a cry. And when he was born, his lungs were flat just like all of ours when we come out of the, the womb. And when he cried, like all babies, his lungs expanded and opened up. and his, They were filled with the air that carries the atoms from all of human histories. His lungs were filled with the particles of stars from the moment of creation. He entered into the world that he helped create, where... Did King Jesus enter when he came? He entered at the bottom. He entered at the bottom and was also put into a, a poor family. He entered at a time where his parents couldn't find a place to sleep. There was no room for him, even at the motel six of his day. This is the king that we are offered in these stories. His palace is a barn or a cave. His throne is a sheep's trough that animals eat out of. Caesar's palace is the most glorious thing in the empire. His throne is the most powerful place to sit. At his fingers are the power of life and death. Jesus, this is what I love about Jesus. It's interesting because right now I'm portraying a really weak version of God and a really powerful version of Caesar, which is representative of the powers in this world. Jesus emptied himself of his power for our sake. It's called the kenosis. He became relatable, he brought the character, love, and heart of God to this world. It's not that he didn't have all the power at his fingertips to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. In the garden, when Jesus was going to be arrested at the end of his life, and one of his disciples took out a knife and he cut off one of the uh, soldiers' ears, um, Jesus said, What are you doing? Like, that's not, it. like, look, if I wanted to, to go the Caesar route, I'd call down a thousand of my angels and it'd be over like that. Like, but that's not how this is going to work. Love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, love your neighbor. Overcome evil with good. That is the message that the all-powerful king came to bring to us. God's display of power is on display for us all of the time. You don't have to look very far. Just watch a thunderstorm. A power that human beings can't control is just one happening all over the planet that he spoke into existence with his word. And yet he presented himself to us as one born poor in order to identify with us in our suffering. He knows what it's like to be at the bottom. He did so with such great humility and love, even for enemies. That's such a different way of the empires of this world. Let me read you Psalm 98 as I come to a close. This is the psalm. Uh, It's not going to be on the screens, but just listen. Uh, It's the psalm that Joy to the World was written after. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our god shout for joy to the lord all the earth burst into jubilant song make music to the lord with the harp and the harp and the sounds of singing with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn shout for joy before the lord the king Let the seas resound and everything in it, the world and all those who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. That sounds scary, but what it actually means is he will judge the world, last verse, with righteousness and the peoples with equity. We have a God who possesses all the power beyond measure. That he's come here to bring a different way of peace in this world. To bring a different way of joy in this world. Friends, may we choose the way of Jesus over the way of Caesar. May we choose our allegiance to Jesus over any political ideology or Form of this Caesar power that might show itself to us in this world. May our love and commitment to Jesus be the highest of all of our commitments and may the spirit of our King Jesus produce in us things like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the way of Jesus, You will never find those things in following the power-hungry patterns of the empires. You will only find true and lasting joy by following the humble position of Jesus, the King who came, born into a manger. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, that's... Uh, I don't know if that's a tough word for some or if that's an easy word for others or a hopeful word or a challenging word, but it is your word. You are presented as the alternative to Caesar. There's a time when your disciples asked if they should pay taxes to Caesar, and you said, yeah, sure, give them that money, but whose image is on that coin? It was Caesar's. Whose image is on us? It's you. So we give ourselves to you today. Um, May you speak deeply to our hearts. I don't know what this talk means for everybody sitting here, but I hope it's a production of joy and hope. In a season that I know for many is lonely, uh, where they might be lamenting loss of family members or loss of hope in all the different ways. We serve and believe in a king who not only was born and walked on this planet and healed a bunch of people, but he was crucified and he didn't stay dead. He rose again. That is everything hinges for us on your resurrection. Because with that, Lord, you promise that death and all things like it are are not the end of the story. Caesar does not win. the wonderful, beautiful creator of all. In your humility, you have the power in your hands and you came down here to enter into the suffering with us. So in a weird way, I pray that that gives us joy and hope today.